Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1, hear now the reading of God's Word. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any distraction, any voice but your own, and that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God is sovereign over your salvation. God is sovereign over my salvation. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And the confession continues. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future. And the confession continues. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. There are those, if I may summarize, there are those whom God foreknew with eternal love. And there are those he did not know in love at all. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined unto adoption. But those whom he knew not, he passed over. Those whom he foreknew and predestined, he called and he justified, but those whom he knew not, he passed over, neither calling nor justifying. Those whom he foreknew and predestined, he called and he justified, but those whom he knew not, know not God at all. What is sometimes referred to as double predestination is nothing more or less than the revelation of God, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. That God is sovereign over our salvation is biblically indisputable, despite the rage against it. But the weight of the truth is not easily comprehended, nor easily accepted. 
that God predestined his elect unto salvation before the foundation of the world. Well, to the unbelieving can sound like harsh determinism. And wrongly understood, it can lead to some of the most ridiculous and heinous deductions. Let me give you just a few examples. One would be the question, why share the gospel if God has already predestined or passed over every soul past, present, and future? Why share the gospel at all? It would seem that predestination and reprobation render evangelism pointless. Or another question, why pray if God from all eternity did unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass? It would seem that prayer is a pointless practice if the outcome for what we pray has already been foreordained. Now, in confronting this foolishness, let us consider that the same apostle who says, God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills, and asks, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, Why have you made me this way? He is the same apostle who laments, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's the same apostle who rhetorically asks, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured much patience, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction? And then confesses, My heart's desire and prayer to God for my kinsmen is that they may be saved. How can Paul testify that God is sovereign over salvation and simultaneously pray for the salvation of his kinsmen? Is he pitting desire and prayer against God's decree and purpose? Is Paul confused? Is Paul contradicting himself? Well, I want us to think about this way in a series of questions. And what I want to begin with was this question. Why pray if God is sovereign? Why pray if God is sovereign? The Shorter Catechism helpfully defines prayer as an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will and the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. And I think that is a brilliant definition of what prayer is, succinctly and well stated. But what it does not tell us is what prayer is not. Prayer is not an attempt to coerce or manipulate God. Prayer is not a platform to make demands of God, as if we could name it and claim it. God is not your order taker. He is the potter, and in case you have forgotten, you and I are the clay. Before a word is thought, 
Before a word is spoken in prayer, prayer is an acknowledgement in its very essence of our helplessness and our dependence. I love the way that J.I. Packer puts this. He says, when we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. It is not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from His hand. To Packer's point, the posture and practice of praying, it is telling of what we believe. We might even say that prayer preaches the sovereignty of God. Prayer preaches the sovereignty of God. So we, like Paul, pray to God for our lost loved ones. We pray that our lost loved ones will be saved. Not because our prayers save them, but because God does. We pray that God will save them, not by our saying grace, but by His saving grace. Our prayers then are not the cause of anyone's salvation, but an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ. That we do pray reveals that we believe God is sovereign. But it doesn't answer the question, does it? The question remains, why pray if God is sovereign? Or, in the context of concern for the lost, does predestination make prayer pointless? Or, to put it another way, why does the Bible teach both? predestination, and prayer without reconciling a presumed contradiction. Well, I say presumed contradiction because there is only the appearance of a contradiction. We call this an antinomy. The appearance of a contradiction between two conclusions. It appears that there is a contradiction. Whether there is one or not must be discerned. Now let me give you an example which often wrongly pits Christianity between Christianity and science. I'm going to start with this side of the congregation. This is a true or false question. You can vote by raising your hand. True or false, God grows the lilies of the field. True, raise your hand. All right? You don't get to vote yet. You got to wait. Okay? All right. True or false, God grows the lilies of the field. Raise your hand. True. All right? All right? Or false. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Second question to this side. True or false? Lilies of the field grow by photosynthesis. True? Raise your hand. False? Okay, good. All right. Now, this is what you call division in the church. (laughs) We have a problem. You say God grows the lilies of the field. You say, I believe in science. It grows by photosynthesis. Which is it? You decide. God or photosynthesis? 
But our brethren in the back, not only taking care of their children, but also listening attentively saying, no, John, you're, you're pitting two things against each other. There appears to be a contradiction, but there is no contradiction at all. God grows the flowers through the means of photosynthesis. So you were both right. Congratulations. Thank you for your help and clarification. Keeping down the vision within the church. But so also is prayer. So also is prayer. In fact, we find in this beautiful reconciliation that God grows the lilies of the field through photosynthesis. We find this beautiful reconciliation so also seen in prayer. God is sovereign. And God works through the means of our prayers. There appears to be a contradiction when in fact there is a beautiful reconciliation to be seen here. Now why God, and this is perhaps a better question, why God chooses to accomplish His sovereign purposes in this way is a mystery. You would think that salvation would be best by instantaneous divine edict, thereby not involving you or me. We tend to mess things up. In writing to his friend Malcolm, C.S. Lewis asks, Why should God do anything through his creatures? Why should he achieve the long way around through labors of angels, men, always imperfectly obedient and efficient, and the activity of irrational and inanimate beings in which presumably... The mere fiat of omnipotence would achieve with instantaneous perfection. Lewis goes on then to answer his own question. He says, creation seems to be delegation through and through. He will do nothing simply of himself which can be done by creatures. I suppose this is because he is a giver. And he has nothing to give but himself. And to give himself is to do his deeds. In a sense, and on varying levels, to be himself through the things he made. And I think that Lewis is on to something there. I think that he is right when he says that God works through us because he is a giver. And in giving, he lovingly, includes us in what he's doing. But not only that, he values our contribution. He lovingly includes us in what he is doing, but he also values our contribution. Lewis says, one of the purposes for which God instituted prayer may have been to bear witness that the course of events is not governed like a state but created like a work of art, to which every being makes its contribution, and in prayer, a conscious contribution, and in which every being is both an end and a means. Think on that for a while, and you'll begin to see that prayer is indeed a participatory privilege that God gives to those whom He loves. Prayer is indeed a participatory 
privilege. But to this first question, why pray if God is sovereign, I want to add a second question to come alongside it, or perhaps you might say to come under it. And that second question is, why pray for the religious? And what I mean by that is if God works through the means of our prayers, perhaps we should be a bit more selective. Pray for our friends? Yes. Pray for our family? Of course. Certainly pray for the atheist, pray for the agnostic, But what about those who are religiously sincere? Should we also pray, for example, for the Mormon? Should we pray also for the Orthodox Jew? It is fascinating to me how our missionary zeal curtails the closer we are to familiarity. We can often be oh so concerned about the unreached people across the world and be so, so unconcerned with the neighbor who disagrees with us politically. Surely those who claim to be Christians are. Surely those who worship God zealously are His children. Assuredly, they are not. Paul acknowledges that the Jews, his own kinsmen, are zealous for God. There is no debate there. The problem isn't their zeal. What is the problem? The problem is their knowledge. What they believe is not right. In their religious zeal, they look not to the righteousness of God in Christ. They look to their own righteousness. Their chief deception is their devotion. Who is more religious than a Jew? They get an A plus for zeal. Sincerity, however, does not save. Although it is self-righteously satisfying. It is easy for us to forget that our religious yet lost neighbors live under The wrath of God, according to Romans. Awaiting judgment. Awaiting eternity in hell. Their religion will not save them. So let us not forget them. Paul certainly didn't. He didn't forget them. Their salvation, he says, is his heart's desire. And so then, what should we pray? What should we pray for the lost? Paul concludes, look with me in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But what does end of the law mean? Has Christ rendered the law obsolete? Has Has the law run its course to its conclusion? Have the Ten Commandments now been discontinued? On the contrary, and Jesus made this perfectly clear, didn't He? He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law is not abolished in Christ, but rather it is fulfilled. And therefore the law is not an end In itself. The law was never an end in itself. This is why Paul refers to Israel as being ignorant 
of the righteousness of God. Why were they ignorant? Was it because they they desired or did not desire righteousness? No, on the contrary, they were ignorant because they were looking to the law for righteousness rather than to the Lord of the law for righteousness. They were looking at the law as an end in itself when in fact the law's fulfillment is in Christ and in Christ is righteousness. Now to be clear, as Paul has already made clear in the seventh chapter, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But keeping the law doesn't make a totally depraved person righteous. What makes a sinner like you? What makes a sinner like me righteous? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only faith in Jesus Christ. It is in this sense that Christ is the end, the culmination of the law. Now think about this with me. When a runner runs a race, what is the end of that race? It is the finish line. The finish line is the end of that race. But in another sense, the finish line is the goal, the objective, the end For that runner. And so Christ is both the end of the old covenant. But so also he is the fulfillment of the law. Israel pursued the righteousness of God through the law in vain. A righteousness found only in Christ. And this truth informs how you pray. This truth informs how I pray For the lost. What then should we pray for the lost? I'll give you three suggestions. First of all. Pray. Obvious. I know. But have you found as I have. That oftentimes we talk far more about praying. Than we actually pray. And so let us start. By praying. And when we do pray. Oftentimes, we pray for immediate temporal needs. I call these head, shoulders, knees, and toes prayers. Now, you're having flashbacks now to Sunday school, aren't you? Head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes. But what I mean by that is oftentimes we're praying for the temporal needs of one another. And it is right and it is good for us to pray these things. But I have to ask you that when I pray for Aunt Bertha's bunions, am I also considering her soul? The important point I'm making here is that prayers for the immediate should never overshadow the eternal. If you find your prayer for others to be consumed with head and shoulders, knees and toes prayers, perhaps it's time to reevaluate your prayers. Because the immediate should never overshadow the eternal. And so let us pray. Number two, when you pray, pray that the lost will be saved. Again, I know this is obvious. But let's not beat around the bush regarding intercessory prayer. Pray that 
they will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that they will not seek salvation through self-righteous works. Pray that they will not be satisfied with sincere religion, but they will be satisfied in Christ alone. And so secondly, let us pray for the lost. And thirdly, when we pray, let us believe that they will be saved. When we pray for the lost, let us believe that they will be saved. Now you may say, but shouldn't we add on James' caveat? If the Lord wills, and of course you may if you wish. But it's not a magical phrase. The point is humility. And prayer is an act of humility before God. You do not pray, give us this day our daily bread, if the Lord wills. No, the simple petition of the Lord, we believe that God will provide our daily bread as He wills. You simply petition the Lord, believing that He will provide as He wills. And now you may say, I, I want to ask this though, regarding the sovereignty of God, if I pray believing the lost will be saved, am I not undermining the doctrine of God's sovereign grace? Am I not undermining the doctrine of predestination by praying believingly that the lost will be saved? And my answer to you is a question. What has that to do with you? Are you the Lord's keeper? Are you now the one assigned to God's sovereign purpose? Do you have an inroads into who is the elect and who is not? No. When we see predestination in Scripture, it is always to point us to the praise of God's grace. It is never, and I mean never, given to us for decision making. We are called to pray. We are called to pray believing that God will save the lost. Perhaps even through you and me sharing the gospel. But this was Paul's heart's desire, he says. Praying for his lost loved ones. This was his heart's desire. And, look back at verse 1 with me. It was his prayer. And so my question for you today is, Who are you praying for today? Let me pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we don't know why, but we thank you that in your love you use us in accomplishing what you have foreordained. And we pray that you would help us as your people to be faithful. Give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart to pray specifically for our lost loved ones. Help us to be a people who are faithful, to be burdened, with the privilege, the high privilege of praying for those who have not trusted in you. We pray today that even now, as you bring people to our minds, that we would be faithful to pray for them. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. 
Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.